Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. I have here in my hand a gift that my wife would hate to receive for Christmas. She would hate it. Uh, see, my wife has a condition, claustrophobia, and when she is pinned down, uh, she, you know, has a panic attack. But there, one time that I did see the claustrophobia come to the forefront is when we had an opportunity to go snorkeling, and she put the mask over her eyes, and she put her head underwater, and that was it. No more snorkeling. Something about the pressure of the water and the tunnel vision where she felt enclosed ignited her claustrophobia. See, this type of tunnel vision can cause us complete distress. But there is a type of tunnel vision that would be healthy if we could just focus on the right person, focus on the right person in Jesus Christ. That type of tunnel vision can actually exchange distress and anxiety for peace. Let's pray. God, I I ask today that as we look in the Scripture and we focus on Jesus, that you would help us, Lord, exchange our anxiety and distress and mourning for peace. We know, Lord, that you can do that through the power of your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would invade our space today and bring about a transformation within us from the inside out where we would have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Just guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We are continuing our sermon series, our Christmas sermon series, Gift Exchange. Today, we're going to be again in the prophet Isaiah, his work. And we're going to start with um, Isaiah 8. And read a little bit of 8 and a little bit of chapter 9. My over-the-ear mic is uh, fritzing, and we have one on on order. So I'm using a handheld today. And uh, Nick knows that I can't talk without using my hands. So I have to use a microphone stand as well. So hang with me if it looks a little different today. Isaiah chapter 8. And, um, you know, sometimes uh, as we focus in on the Christmas season, um, I have friends of mine that are experiencing... Christmas this year for the very first time with missing a loved one from their home. And so Christmas for this year, they'll have joy and they'll have fun and they'll exchange gifts, but um, it's also a time for them that it is the first year that they're experiencing a mourning, a loss. Uh, They are experiencing great sadness because there is a place at the dinner table that is empty for them. Uh, Other people at Christmas time, they um, are experiencing the Something that really is beyond and out of their control, they're experiencing the inflation of prices in such a way that they cannot purchase Christmas gifts for others in their family like they had in the past. That provides some stress. Other people that I know um, that I've even had conversations with recently have become tunnel vision and have begun looking at things that end up, they take their eyes off of Jesus. And the pressure of this world and the media desire to get you clickbait to turn 
with distressing, sad, terrible turmoil can cause instant stress within all of our bodies. And what we have to do is we have to take our focus off of what is terrible and put it back on Jesus. And so that's one of the ways that we're going to do that in Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 8, the people of Israel were also experiencing a distressing season in their life. They were in danger of being invaded from a foreign army called Assyria. Now, the Assyrians, they were pretty, um, they were pretty intense. Assyrians, if you uh, want to know, are, were what we know historically, the best we can tell, invented crucifixion. Congratulations. They're the, they're the people that were so evil and so intense and so deadly that they invented crucifixion. Now, it wasn't... Um, until Rome came along that they perfected it, but Assyria invented it. One of the things that the king of Assyria would do is he would go into a a city or a community that he was invading, taking over, and if you fought against him, he would uh, win because he had an incredible army, and then he would line up the citizens and kill every other one and hang their bodies on poles um, on the streets lining, uh, going into the city. They, They would put the poles through the ribs. That was their crucifixion. Uh, they, they were pretty intense. Judah was in danger. When Isaiah was writing this passage, he, they were in danger of being invaded from Assyria. They were in danger of from being invaded from their northern countrymen, Israel, after their uh, civil war. They were in danger from Syria. They called Aram. Uh, they were in danger um, all around. And uh, this is where we find Isaiah writing to them. Now, if you are in danger of being invaded by a foreign power that was deadly, it might make you have tunnel vision on the wrong things. And when you take your eyes off of Jesus Christ, you will grow in darkness and distress, not knowledge and light and peace. And that's what the Israelites were doing. That's where we find them in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. And Listen to how they were responding to their stress. Listen to how they were responding to what they were looking at. Verse 11, this is what Yahweh says to me, with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of the people. I think this is a warning for us as well. Because listen to what they were doing. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. I think there are several reasons why sometimes we find peace and satisfaction and comfort in conspiracy theories. Uh, The reasons are um, conspiracy theories, and some are more plausible than others. The reason why we have conspiracy theories is because we have found out in news and through history that sometimes people in power, sometimes people with money, sometimes governments don't always uh, do things on the up and up. Sometimes they lie, and sometimes they will abuse their power that that affects them and helps them and doesn't help other people. Okay, so some conspiracy theories are more plausible than others. But some of the reasons why we turn to conspiracy theories is because they help us when we feel like we're out of control and things are not in our control. Most conspiracy theories are, are attached to losers politically. So if you lose an election, then you have more conspiracy theories come out on why you are not in control. Most conspiracy theories start, and that's where they are, live, is politically if I feel like I'm going to lose control or not be in control, then I'm going to de- try to come to grips with why I'm out of control. Another 
Another reason why uh, sometimes conspiracy theories come about is it uh, gives people a sense of significance. If I can identify a villain or several villains that are out to get me, that means my life has significance because I'm worth them trying to attack me. And then there's another reason. Sometimes evil and terrible things happen in this broken, sin-filled world. And for us to make sense of them, sometimes we come up with a story or a theory that helps us make sense of evil. Some of those theories are more plausible than others. The problem with any of them, though, is that we get a sense of peace, a sense of significance, or trying to make sense of the world by leaving God out of it. And we go down rabbit trails that lead us further from God than take us to Him. And the people of Israel, the people of Judah, as their lives became more in danger and they began to feel more out of control, took their eyes off of Jesus and became tunnel-visioned down paths that led to darkness. And so God gave them instructions. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. There was danger coming. And God said, turn to me. Maybe this Christmas you feel like there is danger coming. You've been watching the news and you've gotten tunnel vision. I would say if you go down conspiracy theory trails, it's okay if you're aware of them. It's okay if you explore them. It's okay because some are more plausible than others. You can look for facts to try to back it up. But doubling down on conspiracy theories doubles down on your darkness and distress. It will not give you the sense of comfort and peace that you are looking for. We'll skip over to verse 19 because there's something else that people do when they feel out of control. Verse 19, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. The occult in America is on the rise. And when people feel like they're out of control, they look for a way to control their surroundings and control, have control in their life and they turn to tools God says do not use. Currently, most recent studies have suggested that there are more Wiccan witches in the United States than there are Presbyterians. It's not a joke on a, on a denomination. It's just the way it is. The occult is on the rise. Over half of all Americans believe in psychics and mediums. They believe that crystals have some sort of spiritual energy that can give them comfort and power. This is the occult. I would like to point out 
that God never says those tools don't work. He just says don't use them. Because if you go down that path, it will double your darkness, it will double your destruction, but it will not bring you light and it will not bring you joy. It will not bring you the peace and comfort you were looking for. The people of Israel, as they became more desperate, began to look for ways to answer their questions, give them a sense of understanding, a sense of meaning, and they went down paths that led to destruction. Part of the reason why the Assyrians were coming was a judgment from God because they were worshiping idols instead of him. Some Hebrew manuscripts assign this verse to chapter 8. They were living in darkness and in destruction. And in some, our American Bibles mostly assign this verse to chapter 9. So it's either 8.23 or 9.1. And here's God's answer. To conspiracy and darkness and mediums and trying to be in control of your life and being out of control and not wearing to go, but tunnel vision that's not looking at Jesus. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. I like the sound of that. If you have anxiety, if you have distress, if you are living in darkness, if you feel like life is out of control, he said there is an answer for you. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, we're in chapter 9 now, and the land of Nephtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee was in the northern part of Israel, and every time Israel was invaded, Galilee would be attacked and invaded first. And this is the invasion spot where God is going to storm the beaches, and he's going to bring about relief. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of the Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. God's going to bring relief. But how? God looks at the destruction Assyria is causing. God looks at the Roman government that was using coercive military tactics and coercive, struggle with that word, taxes and military tactics and a Roman government, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. If you disagree with Rome, they just kill you. Then they have peace. He looks at that. He looks at our world and he sees destructive elements and he sees wars and his answer to provide relief, to bring about light, to exchange anxiety for peace is a baby. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's God's desire to bring us peace. And today, we are going to get tunnel visioned. We are going to only see and look at the four royal titles of Jesus. And if we can meditate and live there, I think he can exchange our distress 
for peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Let's start with Wonderful Counselor. That word wonderful is kind of like marvelous or miraculous. He is marvelous, miraculous, and he will give us counsel to live in this day and age. Counsel that counteracts the way the world lives. And Jesus will give you counsel, and then he lives it. He gave counsel like this. Pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. That is counteractive and counterintuitive to the way the world works. And the people who were in authority and the people who had power, the people who had money, the elites of his day did not like that he was being subversive and counteracting their way of ruling. Their way of ruling was with power and might and control, and Jesus counseled, love them, be vulnerable, be respectful, be gentle, be willing to sacrifice, pray for your enemies, help them, love them. In fact, it was so upending that the people of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, who were in charge, they wanted to kill him. Jesus calls us to take on his counsel. He calls us to make him not only our savior, but more importantly, our Lord and master. And he says, take my counsel upon you. Obey me. My disciples will obey me. My disciples will be known for their love. And every time we go out as a people and we obey the counsel of Jesus, number one, the world and people in authority and power will hate us too. If you follow the counsel of Jesus, you will be canceled. But number two, it has transformative power to bring those in authority to what will bring about peace and change, even in our community and even in our homes. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. We should use his counsel. If you want to have a change in your family dynamics... Some of us are dealing with generational poverty. If you want to have a change in your family dynamics, you have to use the counsel of Christ. If you want to make a difference in the homeless population downtown, we have to use the counsel of Christ. It's the craziest thing. For some reason, I got attached to a Facebook post that connected me to the city council meeting. I mean, usually I recommend if you want to fall asleep at night, just listen to one of my sermons at regular speed. But if you really want to fall asleep, you can just watch a city council meeting. But all of a sudden, in the meeting, I don't know why I was, I think I was trying to sleep. There were people that stood up and began yelling at the city council. This is not the council of Christ. We all want to make a difference in our community. But we have to take and use the council of Christ to bring about that change. His council is not with coercive Backroom lies or power and might, but through love and peace. That's the difference. Make babies make a difference <laughs> right there. Just so you know, just as a side note, we love to hear babies in this room. If babies are crying, we praise God for that. If babies are laughing or not being uh, well behaved, we think that's great in here. Uh, we, we think that's awesome. We should use his counsel, but we should also um, come to terms with him as mighty God. See, Jesus is known as a gentle lamb, but he's also described as a roaring lion. Mighty God. 
This is, uh, the, the scripture does not stray from this and does not shy away from this of describing Jesus as a mighty God, a warrior God who is going to take control. Before, when he came, he came and offered his counsel with nails in his hands. When he comes back, he's coming back with a sword in his hand. And we have to deal with this mighty God on earth, Jesus Christ. One of the ways that he shows us that he's a mighty God is he brings order in life to chaos and death. This is a theme all through scripture. In Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It described the, the earth as formless and void and, and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. In the Hebrew, it gets in a little bit more picturesque. It says the waters are chaotic and evil. This was a theme in the scripture. Water equals chaos and evil and God brings order to that world. Instead of chaos, he brings order. Instead of death, he brings life. And this is how Jesus showed up and revealed his authority as mighty God. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows up, and the Gospel of Mark takes you through these stories. He casts out demons. He is mighty God, powerful over demons. He heals sickness and raises somebody from the dead. He is mighty God, power over life and death. He calms the storm, mighty God, over nature. And he forgives sin. Mighty God over everything. In Revelation, as it describes um, what John sees before the throne room of God, he sees that chaotic evil water before the throne room of God and everything under the throne room of God is ordered and peaceful. And the water before the throne is crystal clear and calm. Later in Revelation, there's a picture of judgment that comes and that water is on fire. Remember, it represents chaos and death. And then we get the new heaven and new earth, chapter 21. There is no sea because chaos and death are gone. They no longer exist. And it's because of the mighty God who brought about that change. And we need to deal with this mighty God. We need to deal with the mighty God. We need to deal with Jesus before he deals with us because he will come back. And when he comes back, he comes back as the mighty God warrior. Revelation chapter 19. I love this description of Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. I did that in the first hour, too. I saw before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But there is no cosmic arm wrestling match between God and Satan. When the armies show up to face the rider who is Jesus Christ on his horse, the war is over instantly. Armageddon is not a battle that lasts. It is a battle that is already won on the cross. When all the armies of Satan gather against Jesus Christ, when he comes back, the war has ended. And then judgment will begin. 
See, we need to deal with this mighty God before he deals with us. And God is calling everyone, everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 17 says it this way. Just lost my place. I had it bookmarked. Pulled my bookmark out. Excuse me. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Our God, our Jesus, is a mighty God. We need to deal with him before he deals with us. We need to get right with the Lord before he comes back. And as long as today is today, you have time for salvation. You have time to turn, repent, and give yourself to Christ. We need to use his counsel, and we need to deal with him as mighty God. But he's also known as everlasting father. This has the idea of uh, eternal fatherly protection. Jesus Christ, as he comes to us, he says, I will not leave you as an orphan. And he invites us into the family of God. Now, it might be kind of strange when we think about it. See, uh, in the Trinity, there is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we, we know that they are three persons in one God, but we have trouble understanding that. And we know that God the Father is God and Jesus the Son is God, but Jesus the Son is not God the Father and God the Father is not Jesus the Son. We know that, but we don't quite understand it. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And of course, if we had a God that we could understand completely, he might be a very small God or one that isn't true and is not truly God. As we understand and come to grips with the Trinity, three in one, God, three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we find through Scripture that each one of the Trinity actually participates in each of the activities of the other. So for Jesus to take on fatherly tactics and fatherly responsibility is not out of the realm of who he is as God the Son. And he is called Everlasting Father. He invites us into the family of God. He says he will not leave us as orphans. In John chapter 14, he even describes it this way. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. If you have seen the Father, you have, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is our eternal Father. He has that title, that royal title. So he can give us that type of fatherly protection forever. It kind of works. Another picture in mind, if you want to think about the fatherly protection, is kind of like the shepherd. The shepherd, in Ezekiel chapter 34, God says, the shepherd of his people has not taken care of the people, so he is going to show up himself and take care of the people. And he shows up as Jesus the Son. 
And he feeds the sheep, he strengthens the weak, he heals the sick, he binds the injured, he brings back the strayed, and he seeks the lost. This is the work of our Heavenly Father. See, we need to use his counsel, we need to deal with his might, but we need to turn to him for his fatherly protection or shift to the father stability. Olivia Davis is a Christian writer, and recently, not too recently, but within the last year, her engagement was broken. And she writes in a very descriptive way on the devastation this caused her heart when he broke off the engagement with her. And as she took off her ring and put it in the box for the last time, closing it, she just kept weeping. All of her plans and all of her dreams in her mind had been ruined. She had dreamed of someone loving her for the rest of her life, of someone holding her and calling her beautiful and being with her for the rest of her time. And those dreams were dashed. She said she cried every day for two weeks. And every day, if she wasn't careful, she'd have running mascara down her face as she dealt with this pain. And she said the pain blew up her theology. And she couldn't understand how a good God would allow her to suffer in such that way. And when she came to church that next Sunday, while they were taking communion, she took her communion and threw it in the garbage. She said over time, she began to realize that God had not abandoned her. And he kept pursuing her in beautiful ways that in her mind she did not see. Because in her mind, every time God showed up, it, he was showing up and pursuing her and loving her. But it didn't change the fact she was no longer engaged. So she had trouble seeing God's love continuing to show up. But now that she's writing it and looking back, she realized that even though she had thrown away her communion and felt like she had abandoned God, he had never abandoned her because he's the everlasting father. And she writes that he kept showing up in ways I just didn't recognize through my grief. Her church surrounded her, brought her meals. Her small group laid their hands on her and prayed for her. A stranger stopped in the middle of the street and said, can I pray for you? Her parents showed up and brought her flowers. Her pastor made time to talk with her. When she was in the congregation, she couldn't sing, but the people around her were praising God, drawing her back just like he was drawing her close. She recognized that the love of the Father had never left her, and he really would bind her wounds and go after those who had strayed because he is the everlasting Father. We need to use his counsel. We need to deal with his might. And we need to turn to him for that fatherly protection. And finally, he's known as the Prince of Peace. Jesus comes in and appears to his disciples after the resurrection, and he says, Peace be with you. Now, this peace is not like the world offers peace. This is the peace that has the capacity to forgive. And Jesus offers a peace that gives us the readiness to share generously. This is the peace that pays attention to those who are unworthy and those who are cast out. This is the peace that gets rid of all class distinctions. 
This is the peace that reveals the love of God. This is the peace that when everyone else is being exalted, humbly accepts last place. When everybody else is trying to be first, this is the peace that is very comfortable with being last. This is the peace where you deny yourself to look to the interest of someone else. Jesus says, peace be with you. My peace I give you. In John chapter 20, I like how he says the peace here. In John chapter 20, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus is peace. He's the prince of peace. We saw this type of peace yesterday when we had our blessing store. We had wall-to-wall, good-to-great items in the atrium and down the hallway. 36 tables. 36? 33 tables full of treasure for somebody. And there was a rush of about 70 people at 9 a.m. when we opened the doors, and there were families who needed a Christmas pick-me-up, and some of them, not all of them, but some of them, are the people in our community who have been cast out and nobody pays attention to. We gave them peace because we loved on them. We gave them peace because we said we care about you. And it might seem like it's just a trinket or junk or some item that we no longer use that somebody else can use but it is a way to offer the peace of Christ that they would not have any other way. Teresa, I saw Teresa McCann came in yesterday, and as she came in, she brought a bag of things that she wanted to donate. And one of the things that she brought, uh, she was here first hour, she's over with the Princess Ministry, she just brought some, some Christmas decoration, still brand new, never been used, that she had bought and planned to use, but decided, hey, I'm not going to use these this year. I'll donate and see if anybody else can donate. She showed up at 10. I put her stuff out at 10.01. At 10.03, a family came by and said, ah, we don't have Christmas decorations. This is perfect for our home. It's a beautiful display of love from our church to somebody else. But isn't it the opposite? Isn't that the opposite of what the world offers a capacity for give a readiness to share generously how does the world operate the world operates with vengeful tactics the world operates with give me mine the world operates with distinctions between class usually brought about by politics and money Attentiveness to the vulnerable and unproductive, the world cast them aside. And the world always, always tries to be first and never denies itself, but that is not the type of peace that Jesus brings. The peace that Jesus brings comes through vulnerability, denying self, and looking to the interest of others. And this is the peace he gives us And this is the piece he tells us to carry out to other people. Yesterday was a good example, but we don't stop with a blessing store. That just starts 
a conversation and a relationship to carry on to bring them the peace of Christ somewhere else. We need to use his counsel. We need to get tunnel vision on his counsel. Deal with his might as mighty God. Tunnel vision on turning to him as a father, turning to him for our spiritual family and allowing him to exchange our distress, our conspiracy theory, our desire to be in control for peace. We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.